As you're turning in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Today I'm going to switch it up on you. Uh, I'm going to come from the New International Version today. One thing about being a leader, as far as a Christian leader is concerned, sometimes you have to lead people where they don't want to go, but where they need to go. I'll say that one more time. As a Christian leader, it's incumbent upon us to lead people places where they may not want to go, but where they need to go. In John chapter 4, Jesus led his disciples through Samaria. They didn't want to go through that part of town, but Jesus knew they needed to to go through that part of town. And as he took them through an area where the Bible says he had to go through Samaria, when every other Jew went around those people, he went through there. And not only was he intentional to go through that place and to bring his followers with him, ones who didn't want to go, but he was also intentional to make an investment in a lady that needed to hear about the living water that he offered. A lady that to the disciples was insignificant. A lady that to the disciples was classified as a dog, but not to Jesus. And he says, guys, follow me and watch what I do. Because I'm going to be intentional to initiate a conversation with a woman that historically and culturally, we're not supposed to talk. But Jesus said to her and blew her away when he said, can I have something to drink? Can I drink out of your cup? And by doing that, he showed value to her person. Just in that one little expression, he showed that he wasn't afraid of her and he wasn't like the rest. And he was attempting to knock down walls that had been built up for centuries between Jews and Samaritans. Now, while he was ministering to her, his followers that he was discipling, they didn't understand why he was talking with her because in their cultural understanding that's not what they did that's not how they were raised as good Jewish boys but they were following a Messiah who was changing everything about them not just their eternal destination but everything about them in this life and even for the disciples as I read John chapter 4 They couldn't go all the way with Jesus on this one. Not right now. Because Jesus tells them, as when the lady departs, he says to the 12, he says, 
I'm about to send you to harvest a field that you didn't work to plant. As a matter of fact, this field is ripe for harvest. If you can open up your eyes and see the people coming. Because that woman went out and told all her friends, and they were coming to hear about the man who told her all things that she had ever done. But as you read the narrative in John chapter 4, it doesn't appear that the disciples followed Jesus all the way into engaging with those people. Because you'll see the singular used over and over as it pertains to Jesus. So it looked like the disciples said, I just can't go there. And they left him. To the point where the Samaritans invited Jesus to stay with them for a couple of days. Not Jesus and the disciples, but Jesus. And Jesus would not stop ministry to this one woman and even that entire village because of where his disciples happened to be. He wouldn't let their hesitation hinder him from doing what he was called to do, and that's to love everybody. You see, he was patient with them as he is with us because there would come a time when they would get it. And in the book of Acts chapter 8, the pillars, Peter, James, and John, went into Samaria. And God had worked it in such a way where the Holy Spirit would not come on the Samaritans without the touching, the laying on of hands of the apostles. So they had to touch those people that they wondered why their Savior was even drinking with years prior. But God worked on them, just like he has worked and is working on me. And if there's a witness that you could say he is working on you, can you say amen? Amen. We may not all be at the same place right now, but man, if you're on the road with me, the road of reconciliation, which can get bumpy sometimes, man, you're on the right road. And I thank Jesus for his work to include us. Psalm chapter 22. For the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh, my God. I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night and am so silent Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Today, let me talk to you on the subject of I know someone. 
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth that is in Jesus, for the truth is in Jesus, Ephesians 4 tells us. John 14 says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Jesus, you said in John 17 that your word is truth. God, we need truth today. Truth that helps calibrate our feelings. Truth that challenges our thinking and our mental constructs. Truth that brings healing for you sent your word and you healed the Israelites. We need healing today. Send your word. May it be salve. May it even be full of the nutrients that we find in honey. Touch us today in the crevices of our consciences. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, for including us in the work of redemption. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I call your attention to Psalm 22, verse 6, where David said, But I am a worm and not a man. I am a worm and not a man. What, what would make our beloved David feel like a worm and not like a man? Why did he question his manhood? Why would a man who is royalty, for he had been anointed by Samuel to be king, why would a man who is royalty feel like a worm? Why would an anointed vessel of national greatness, he killed Goliath in front of the nation and they sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Why would a man of national greatness feel so distraught in Psalm 22? What kind of sociological stress did he encounter that caused him to emotionally cave in? What personal perplexities rained down on his psyche, causing him to devalue himself? What cultural conflicts led him to such a low, dehumanizing view of himself? You see, when the Israelites were going into the promised land and they saw these giants before them, rather than standing on the promises of God and looking at God who is greater than any giant, they looked to themselves and they said, we look like grasshoppers in our own sight compared to them. And won't a so-called insurmountable problem, challenge, obstacle that we face cause us to see the ineptness in our own souls? that make us feel small. We overlook the fact that our God is great and his hand is good upon us. 
So, David, how did you get to this place? Because worms, at least a grasshopper can jump, but a worm meanders and crawls. Worms get overlooked. Worms are used as bait. And worms get stepped on. Why is this man who will be the next king of Israel feeling like he is being stepped on and overlooked? What made him feel this way? Well, some commentators say that the background, and no one knows for sure what led to the writing of Psalm 22, but some say the background may have come from 1 Samuel chapter 23. Verses 25 through 29, when David was on the run yet again from King Saul. King Saul was threatened by David. He knew that David would take his place. Saul wanted Jonathan to take his place and follow him to keep the kingship in the house of Benjamin. But even Jonathan knew that David was the Lord's anointed. And he gave David his shield, his everything, and said, I acknowledge the hand of God on you. I will be by your side, even though I'm in line to be prince and king. I acknowledge the hand of God on you, and he gave David his power. But it was a power that he recognized that God had already given David. It was a position that Jonathan recognized that God had already given David. But how many folks know that even though God calls you to do something, the devil ain't going to let it be easy? And there'll be folks that will try to stop you and say, you can't do or be what God called you to do or be. But if God be for me, who can be against me? <laughs> God got something for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk in it and do it. But that doesn't mean there won't be resistance. And so there was resistance by Saul. To the point where they knew where David was because the local town people sold him out. They sent word to Saul and said, he's here. He's hiding in our area. So Saul came and began to surround the mountain where David was hiding. And as he was closing in with his numerous troops to take care of David and his few mighty men, a battle that in the natural David could not win. But in the supernatural, God was fighting for him, and there was a telephone call. Use your sanctified imagination. We know they didn't have phones back then, but you come on, go with me. And there was a message that said, Saul, you must retreat from following David because another nation has invaded your home territory. So Saul had to stop what he was doing chasing David in the natural to go back to his homeland. And it was in this setting where David felt encircled, where David felt outnumbered and he felt like a worm, despised and rejected is when he wrote this psalm. As a matter of fact, let's pick it up at verse 12. He said, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. Don't, don't forget that. My, my heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So while he's running and scaling mountains and going into caves, he gets cut and he is wounded. Now, I don't know exactly. We, that, that's an idea to think of what caused Psalm 22 to be written. But I can't say emphatically that Saul's pursuit of David led to Psalm 22, this psalm where he questioned his manhood in this moment and felt like a worm. But one thing I can say with certainty is that I can identify with how David felt. Yes, I am a man. In fact, by his grace, I am a man of God. But there are times where societal pressures come against me with hurricane force and beat against my saved mind, my sanctified understanding, and the things that hit me from the outside cause me to crumble on the inside and even question my manhood. At times, I, your pastor doesn't feel like a man. I feel like a worm. I feel like I get stepped on. I feel like a thing instead of a human being. I feel sometimes like I never measure up and I never ever will as far as society's measuring stick. So when I watch the news and see the senseless and avoidable killing of men who look like me, it hits me in a vicarious way where I feel emotionally empty, bankrupt, drained, depleted, devoid, debunked, defunct. Oh. And when these killings happen, and there is not enough evidence or due process to even bring about an indictment, not even a conviction, but an indictment, it makes me wonder, what is it about me and my people that we still don't seem to have the value and the dignity that God gave us when he created us? I know what slavery taught about my ancestors, that they weren't human, that they were three-fifths of a person, and I know that had to do with voting and all this kind of stuff in the South. But nevertheless, my people, we were told again and again that we were fit to be beasts, that we were even cursed by God, cursed with black skin, things being contorted out of the Scripture and for hundreds of years weighed on our psyche where we were never really a part of this country that we helped build physically. I know 
The Emancipation Proclamation ended those hundreds of years of the mentality towards the black man, right? I know Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act, those things curtailed America's view and understanding of the black male in particular, who was always seen as a brute, sex-crazed, lazy. Those things change, right? Where Dred Scott tried to sue to get his own freedom as he went into a free territory. But the government, Judge Tannehill, wrote and put into law that a black man does not have any rights that a white man is bound to respect. How do you beat the system that's on the plantation, beat the system that's in society, and then try to beat what the government says about you? Maybe I can go into church and get some encouragement in my value and personhood before God, but no. When I went to the castles of Elmina, when we went to Ghana, and as the slave trade was going on, there were churches built right over the places where slaves were divided and women were raped. And these churches had big crosses on them. So I can't go into the church. And so for hundreds of years, men of color were lost in the wilderness of America, trying to find themselves, being devalued by society, even God's people. But somewhere it stopped, Pastor Chris. It stopped, right? Why are you talking about this, man? We're all equal now. We don't want to hear this. But a good leader is going to lead you into a place you may not want to go and don't think you need to go, but I'm going to this place because Jesus is in that place. You know you're a preacher. When you talk about things, well, let me back up. When you get talked about for talking about things that people don't want to talk about but need to hear, that's when you know you're a preacher of the gospel of Jesus. So go with me, please. Because as a big black guy, I, I'm a big black guy, and I get mistaken for being a titan all the time. And I sign autographs sometimes. Ain't on the team or nothing. One time I had the boldness to sign a picture with all the players on it. I, I signed it, and, and I bet they got home, and they were looking like, who is this dude right here? We... But as a big black guy, I understand Eric Garner's frustration with the police. His last words were, I, I know we like to talk about when he said, I can't breathe. But before he said that, he said to the police as he stood in that corner, a corner that many times he was doing illegal activity in terms of selling cigarettes with cigarillos, selling non-taxed individual cigarettes, taking money out of the store owner's pocket. I, I understand that. He was hustling. He was doing his thing, like so many people do. 
not only in the hood, but in corporate America. He was hustling. And he said to the police, every time you see me, you want to mess with me. He said before he died, please, just leave me alone. And then he said, I'm tired of it. And it stops today. I have been frustrated with authorities like Eric Garner. I get tired of being followed by security guards myself. Like my brother-in-law said, we've been black our whole life and we understand when something isn't right. We've been forced to be multicultural. We have no choice but to adapt to the white man's world. We have to get along to get along. And, and we understand when there's turbulence, when the spirit isn't right. And man, when I go into stores, your pastor, I have a master's degree. I'm on my way to getting a doctor's degree. I lead one of the greatest churches in the South, if not the country. I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. But there's a mentality that I have to fight with every time I go into a convenience store, I go into a mall, and that is they think I'm here to steal something. Now, I know I'm not there to steal something. Matter of fact, like Paul said, excuse me, I must boast as a fool for a moment. You know how Paul would try to prove himself to people that were hating on him? He said, he would say, excuse me, this ain't from the Lord, this from me. So when I'm in those stores and I'm being followed by plain clothes cops, sometimes I'll talk to them. And I want to say to them, do you know I make more money than you make? I want to say that. I want to be a fool for a sec, but I humble myself in Christ. Every time I go out of a store, a grocery store, hardware store, dollar general, it don't matter. I do not put my hands in my pocket. I am always cognizant and aware that somebody is going to think, why? Because if you put me up against a white person, just put our picture side by side, who are they going to think the thief is? The conditioning of how our country was built. And while they holding me and detaining me, that white brother cleaning them out in their store. Oh, pastor, come on. You've seen the studies, the baby doll studies that they did back in the 50s to try to get our nation to break that so-called separate but equal standard. But kids, even black kids, were drawn to the white dolls, thinking that the white dolls were right and pure and good and the black. So my people have been taught self-hate. That's why we call each other nigger. Because we heard the white man call it to us first. We tried to flip it and make it a term of endearment on the plantation. But when we got mad with one another for not hoeing that cotton fast enough, we would use it derogatorily the way the slave master used it towards us. Now, ooh, we could trace the N-word for a second here, and we shouldn't be using it. But if we just tell... Black people, y'all need to stop using it. And we don't trace the history of where it came from in the first place. That my white brothers are culpable for placing that word 
into our culture, American culture. It didn't start with us as Africans. Mm -hmm. I hate it when I get followed by police into my own neighborhood and get pulled over with lights blazing asking if I live here. It makes you feel like a worm. Neighbors are looking out the drapes and your psyche. I remember one time I came out of the post office. I, I mailed probably my mother a letter, you know, feeling good. I, I get in my car and I must have driven 10 feet. And you know how you get in your car to drive and then you put your seatbelt on? Downtown Franklin, five points. I got in my car, started driving. Man, I must have gone 10 feet before I, you know, I was probably reaching. Pull me over. Gave me a ticket that day. And I'm like, I said to him, I said, man, I, 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 was, just, I was putting my seatbelt on. Well, sir, you didn't have it on, rule of law. You didn't have it on. And then I'm sitting there, you know, I, I drive off, and I'm like, he must have been watching me or something. I, I know I didn't get from here to the end of this wall before he pulled me over for not having, Pastor Chris, you should have done the rule of law. Well, how many, I, 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 I know a lot of white guys but I've never had them tell me a similar story. And if you have one at the church, tell me so I can feel better. But this is just part of our experience. I had been pulled over and I wasn't driving. I'm just talking about how I can identify with Eric Garner's frustration that day. My brother-in-law's frustration, and this brother handles multi-million dollar clients, and every now and then, something will happen that will try to damage you to say, I don't care how far you've come, that to some people, you steal that plantation. I go into the park one day, Jim Warren Park. I want to spend some time with the Lord, man. I got my Bible. I'm ready, man. I'm going to put some worship music on. Woo! But when I pulled into Jim Warren Park, I saw a white lady who saw me. I saw her see me. She saw me see her. And the look of terror on her face when I came in there, I said, oh, and this is how we're conditioned. I, I, I'm inviting you into my world. I said, she's going to call the police. This is your pastor. I'm, I'm, I'm pastor now. This wasn't me back in the hood. And even if it was, it doesn't make it right, but my pants weren't sagging. You know, back in the day, my name was MC Romeo. I was, you know, trying to be a little hustler, you know. Yeah. Trying to be a little thug from Baltimore, you know. No, this is your pastor, you know. So I'm sitting there, and I open up my Bible, and I'm just waiting for them to come. We almost have a sixth sense. And in a moment, on my window, I roll it down, and the white police officer says to me, Sir, is everything all right? And I'm sitting there with my Bible, and my brother-in-law, he said, you know, sometimes you can be filled with the Spirit, and then you can spring a leak. At that moment, I jumped in the flesh, and I said to him, don't I look all right? 
Matter of fact, are you going around checking on every other car that's sitting out in this park, asking them if they are all right? Why are you coming up to me, knocking on my window, asking me, am I all right? He had nothing to say to me. And I drove away, man. And the feeling you get when that kind of mess happens to you, it tears you down to make you feel like a worm. It's like, what is it about me? And all I could say was, Lord, I'm so glad they didn't pull over one of my little homies. Because I lost it, and I'm a big homie. They'd have pulled over one of the little homies, Lord. What do we do? How do we get through this? So in many ways, I'm Eric Garner. And like him, I like to say, every time you see me, you, you want to mess with me? You want to follow me through a store? Please leave me alone. I pay taxes. I'm a good citizen. I'm tired of it. And sometimes you say it stops today. But never have I said I can't breathe. And hopefully I never will have to say I can't breathe. But let me tell you something. Whenever I confront a police officer, if I am clearly in the wrong, like Speedy, if I'm going 70 in a 55 and those blue lights get me and I'm wrong, I have broken the law, I still get nervous, so nervous that I can feel my nerves and it's pulsating through my body because I don't know what's about to happen in this encounter, especially if it's dark and I'm somewhere here in our beloved South. And I make sure I sit still and I keep my hands where they can see them. I make sure I have all my written notification in my car. I make sure I answer every question politely because you just don't know. Now, I've been close enough over the years with my white brothers. That, never, that hardly ever enters into their mind. Matter of fact, I was riding with a white brother one time. He broke the law so bad. Drove up on the shoulder around traffic. Got pulled over by the police. Me and a couple of other brothers are in the car. We all begin to go through the drill. Uh-oh, get your license. Don't make a quick move. Let them see your hands. My white homie begins to argue with the police officer for having the audacity for pulling him over when he broke the law. And then argue with the officer and didn't get a ticket. The brothers in the car looked at the white dude like, you the man. How you do that? We can't ever do nothing like that. So it doesn't enter in for you, but if you walk closely enough with me, I'll share a couple of stories with you. And hopefully you'll develop a little bit more understanding and compassion. Because when one cop comes after me, my heart palpitates. I can't imagine being surrounded by five. And one who puts his hands on me from behind. My heart might melt like wax inside of me the way it did inside of that brother. And isn't it amazing that he becomes the victim and the reason for why he died because he was obese and he had asthma. He had a bad heart. No, he got choked and his heart got crushed. But they expect me to say it. To some people, talking about this puts me in the realm of an Al Sharpton. 
But you know what? I ain't mad at Al. Because I saw Al holding on to this man's widow, trying to console her. I said in my heart, I would love to be there holding her. What are we going to do? Well, Russell Moore, because I need white people to speak to this. Because white people aren't going to really listen to me talk about this kind of stuff. You are listening to it because you're understanding the diverse kingdom. That God is bringing all of us together across race, class, and gender barriers. But many people don't get this. That's why many white pulpits are silent on this kind of stuff. But the black pulpit has always been a social active pulpit. It just has not been a theological pulpit. It's been an active pulpit. It had to be. As a matter of fact, if we really look at Jesus, he was the perfect combination of theology and sociology. But Russell Moore, a brother I met the other night, man, good brother, white cat, president of ethics and religious liberty of the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank God for the Southern Baptist Convention trying to undo what was done in the day. And this man said, a government that can choke a man to death on video is not a government living up to a biblical definition of justice or any recognizable definition of justice. We may not agree in this country on every particular case and situation, but it's high time we start listening to our African-American brothers and sisters in this country when they tell us they are experiencing a problem. And we say there is a problem. For those of you who would say, Pastor, you just need to get over it. You need to stop being so super sensitive, man. We're tired of hearing about this every Sunday. No, I don't talk about it every Sunday. You're just super sensitive and think I talk about it every Sunday. But if you get super sensitive, that means you need to hear it the most. Get over it, Pastor. I used to get on my mother, you guys. My father passed away in 2000, May of 2000. And my mother still grieves for my father as if he passed yesterday. And without fail, when I call my mother 14 years later, in that conversation, she's going to talk about my dad. In that conversation, she's going to talk about how much she misses my dad, how she, she's still struggling. And about four or five years ago, I got so upset with her because it was like a broken record. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. I knew what the conversation was going to be like. And I was about to say to my mother, Mom, don't you think it's time to get over it? I have. I mean, I miss my dad and all, but come on, Ma. It's, it's time for you to get over this because it's affecting everything about you. And the Lord saved me from getting smacked long distance through the phone. Yeah, black mother can smack you long distance. Chewing gum and everything go out your mouth. Right before those words came out of my mouth, the Holy Spirit said, don't you dare judge her anymore. All people grieve differently. And you don't know the man the way she knew the man. 
she was one flesh with that man. She laid down with that man. She had that man's children, of which you are one. She spent over 40 years of marriage to that man. She knew him in a way. You did not know him, so don't you dare criticize her as she's grieving his law. She may never get over it, and if she doesn't, will you be her son and love her anyway? You better. And so now my heart is full with more compassion. When I talk to my mother, no one wants to hear someone judge them while they're grieving. No one wants to be corrected. Dorina, what did you say to me this morning? A twin of criticism is what? Is what you know I can't hear? Telling you what to do is a twin to criticism. So as I close this message, family, and I thank you for letting me preach because you got to know people watch this church. So it's just not about what he's doing in here, but, man, people are feeding off of what we're doing. They're watching us. There are pastors that I mentor. People, they need to see that it can work. And as we come to church, man, I don't want to hear that today. But guess what? Somebody else needed to hear this today. So this church isn't all about what you want and what you think. Because you know, man, your pastor does his best to speak truth and love to everyone across the divide. Everybody. And there just comes a time, sometime, where we got to go places in Samaria, we may not want to go, but we need to go. Pastor Darrell said to me, why does God always, why does he allow America, and especially the church, to keep coming back to this familiar place of racial tension? Why do we keep coming back here? And I believe he wants to heal us from our past racial wounds. But we can't get healed if we're in denial that there are even wounds to begin with. We can't get healed. We, we won't get healed. And the only way that he can heal us, he has a part and we have a part, and that is we've got to admit it. We've got to repent from it. And we've got to daily confront it in our hearts and even in our institutions. For many of my white friends, you stop at relationships. I've got a black friend. I've apologized to this sister, this brother. Man, we're good personally. But many times you're blind to what is happening institutionally and systemically. And just as God is working on you personally, and you're developing relationships with people that your family don't even understand. We need you to also open up your eyes and see what's going on systemically so that when we begin to cry out, you can join us in the cry because, once again, unfortunately, there are people who will never listen to me because they cut me off simply by the color of my skin. But if you say it, it has more validity than when I say it. That's why we've got to have another white pastor here soon. For when he leads the charge 
and I can sit back. That's power. But since he ain't here right now, I'm going to do what I got to do. I can identify, as my pastor plays lightly, I can identify with David in Psalm 22 when he felt like anything but a man. And the only thing that keeps me from going over the deep end, losing it, going off, making the news in a way that doesn't glorify God, is that I know someone who regulates me, balances me when I get out of balance. I know someone who calms me when I get upset. I know someone. I, I know someone who, yes, he's really the subject of Psalm 22. David is writing prophetically about this someone, and his name is Christ. And he is someone who can be touched with the feelings of my infirmities. He is someone who was tempted in every point, just like I have been, yet without sin. He is someone who was wrongly called a Samaritan, which was a racial slur in his day. He is someone who was wrongly labeled as demon-possessed. He is someone who made himself into a slave. He is someone whose words were taken out of context and used to frame him to kill him. He is someone who was arrested under false charges, lied upon, and unjustly tried. He is someone who was brutalized and bludgeoned while under arrest. He is someone who was subjected to an evil political system. He is someone who was executed under bogus charges. He is someone who was dead, and they left his mutilated body on the cross hanging there. Because of their disgust and disdain, cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. He was cursed by man. However, this someone gives me my dignity, my value, and my personhood. This someone created me in his own image, and he made me black, and he made me beautiful. This someone tells me how much he loves me. This someone tells me he has a plan for my life and no demon in hell can stop what he has for me. This someone knows my name. This someone saved my soul and he also saved my lifestyle. This someone tells me that I am a man, even a man of God. This someone exposes the lies of the enemy and teaches me his truth. This someone walks with me and talks with me and tells me that I am his own. This one teaches me to show compassion and to love those who don't love me. This someone defeated death for me by dying on the cross for my sins. And this someone got up from the dead and he is the one who raises me up from dead circumstances and from stinking thinking. This is my someone. A couple nights ago, Superman was on TV. My wife loves Superman with Christopher Reeve playing it. She don't know about these new dudes. She liked them old school where you can almost see the ropes and stuff on them, the cable, dude flying on a table. And in Superman 1, 
Superman had just taken Lois Lane out on a date, and they're flying through the heavens, and her dress is blowing in the wind, and they're looking at each other, and it's so romantic. Then he brings her back home, and he flies away. And then in just a few moments, there's a knock on the door, and Clark Kent, a bumbling idiot, he's standing there, big old glasses on, and he's looking all hunched over and stuff. Uh, uh, Lois, uh, Lois, uh, hello, Lois, hello. And he's tripping and he's goofy. Because he's got to hide his identity. And she can't even stand him. She don't even look at him. And I'm like, wait a minute, y'all. We may not be the sharpest knives in the drawer or the brightest bulb in the ceiling. But he looks just like Superman if you take them big glasses off of him. How you not know that's him? So she goes into another room and he's in love with her. And he wants to tell her his identity. And so he takes his glasses off because, you know, at first he, he's just kind of hunched over and stuff with, as Clark Kent. He just, you know, but then he says, I need to tell her who I really am. And so he takes his, and my wife, this is one of her favorite parts. When that brother take his glasses off, he stand up and his shoulders get back. He looked like he grew three inches when he took his glasses off. I'm Superman, baby. And then he stopped, and he said, no, it ain't time yet. Let me put my glasses on. Then he shrunk back down like a worm again. <laughs> oh, I want to let you know some society may tell me I need to be stooped over, that I need to be ashamed of my color, ashamed of my people, ashamed of being black. But there's someone who tells me that I'm a super saint, and you take that uh, uh, judgment off. You take that mess off that society wants to put you in, and watch me stand up strong. Watch me stand up straight, because I am a child of God, whether you want to admit or not, I know who I am in Jesus Christ. He is that someone. For the black church, we had to come to church and shout out the frustration. We had to lay before the altar to find out who we were in God. That's why every day was Sunday for us. And we talked about going to heaven where every day would be Sunday because on Sunday we had at least some uninterrupted time with God to pour out our hearts before him. And in this multiracial church, my white brothers and sisters, you may not understand, but I need you to get some understanding. Because some of us got to let some stuff go. I almost passed this mic around today. So that you can hear from other people and not just from me how we are hurting as a people right now. 